0: Hello, I'm Alex Long, the Vice President of U.S. Surgical Marketing at Alcon, and we are proud to sponsor the History of Eye Care podcast to help facilitate important discussions about ophthalmology. Alcon's business is built on a solid foundation of market-leading eye care expertise and deep, long-lasting relationships with eye care professionals like you. As a global leader in eye care, we offer the most complete line of ophthalmic surgical devices in the world, including best-in-class equipment platforms, market-leading implantables, and a full line of consumables. Alcon is committed to delivering better patient outcomes and customer experiences through world-class training, education, products, and services. Visit professional.myalcon.com to connect with us.
1: Welcome to the History of Eye Care, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the evolution of modern eye care. We'll hear the stories of today's thought leaders, innovators, and legends. By exploring the past, we can better shape the future. From anterior segment and refractive surgery to retina, plastics, and glaucoma, no part of eye care's rich history will be left in the dark. Here's your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti, an eye surgeon and curious historian who is ready to uncover the landmark moments and untold stories that have revolutionized eye care. Let's dive in. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the History of Eye Care. I'm your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti, and I'm ready to embark on another expedition through the history of our field. Today, we are joined by our first international guest, Dr. Arthur Cummings, who is an esteemed surgeon who originally hails from South Africa, but has built a remarkable career in Dublin, Ireland. He's been an integral member of the Refractive Surgery Alliance and World College of Refractive Surgery, helping to standardize high-quality refractive surgery. Dr. Cummings is an innovative force in both cataract and refractive surgery, contributing significantly to the development of some of the field's most advanced interventions and instruments. He serves on the Medical Advisory Board of more than 10 ophthalmic companies, influencing innovations in lasers, IOLs, diagnostics, and even dry eye management. He serves as the only ophthalmologist on Alcon's Board of Directors and was recently the European President of the American European Congress of Ophthalmic Surgery, known as ACOS. We're thrilled to have Dr. Cummings with us today, who is a visionary helping to shape the field as we know it. Welcome to the show, Arthur. It's so great to have you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you started in this whole journey of ophthalmology and kind of how you got to where
0: you are today? Well, thank you, Morgan. I really appreciate the opportunity. And yeah, I hope my story can, can encourage people along the way. So from a very young age, I wanted to be a doctor. It's, I don't know where, it's just the thing that I grew up with. There were no doctors in the family but I had a very good relationship with our GP and I sort of felt, you know, as someone who has an impact on people's lives and so that's where it started. And I grew up in South Africa and in South Africa, after I trained to be a doctor, we were conscripted to the army. We had to go to the army for two years. And during that time, if you were lucky enough, you could get the choice of the discipline you wanted to work in for part of that time, the two years, maybe the second year. And ophthalmology was taken by my best mate, my best friend, and I landed up in neurology and really enjoyed it. It was a very wide scope of work, grateful patience. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And my friend said to me one day, and we only got seven days leave in the army. He said to me, I know you only have seven days leave, but you've got to take one of those days and spend the day with me in the clinic. I know you for a very long time. We used to go to school together, we swam together. So we knew each other well, and he knew me very, very well. And I spent one day in the eye clinic. I didn't even see a procedure, but I spent one day in the eye clinic, took a couple of looks through the slit lamp and said, you know what, this is what I want to do. And that's where it started. And I trained in South Africa with an incredible head of department who was a retinal surgeon. So we got a very, very strong retinal surgery background. And by the time I qualified, we really had incredible training. Um, I was doing a lot of procedures. So my first few years of practice in South Africa, I was doing eight or 10 retinas a week. I was doing a lot of LASIK and I was doing a lot of cataract, which people obviously is our bread and butter. And one of my mentors who was ahead of me, who was also a jack of all trades, he said to me, look, if you really wanna do well, You need to specialize. And I always thought, why are you telling me that? You know, you're not doing that. But he was right. So I decided I'd spent a lot of time abroad learning more about retina. And um, cataract, we sort of thought we knew what was going on. LASIK at that point, we had the busiest laser in the world. The Pretoria Eye Institute was doing 55 cases every day of the week, seven days a week in 1994. So we were doing a lot of surgery. And again, I sort of believed we knew all there was to know about it. But I realized that I hadn't spent any time learning more about refractive. So in 98, I decided to come to Ireland to do a fellowship with the person in in Ireland who owned the Wellington Eye Clinic, Frank Lavery. And he was the first person in Europe to, in fact, buy an eczema laser. There were other eczema lasers out there that were part of studies, but he bought one. And so coming to his clinic and working alongside, he had one optometrist then. And just seeing for argument's sake how people would document uncorrected vision, refraction, base-corrected vision at every visit, pre-op and post-op, was a mindset shift to me. We would, if the person was 20-20 afterwards, we'd in the note that they're 20, 20 and that's it, not see them again kind of thing. So I changed my mindset and 18 months later when it was time to go back, my wife said we had two young kids, she really enjoyed being in Ireland and working here and the kids were enjoying the, their life and we thought we'd spend some more time. And in fact, next month is 25 years. So that's the story of how I landed up in Ireland. And then something very interesting happened, I guess. For me, it was interesting. And the way I managed it, I think, was interesting in retrospect, is when I started the fellowship, Frank Lavery said to me, you won't be doing any retina. And in a way, I was quite pleased because I've been doing so much retina after hours, really. I wasn't seeing my kids enough, and I thought, that's brilliant. I don't mind that at all. I need a break. And he said to me, but within weeks, you'll be doing cataracts because he had started the, the department in the local private hospital. But turns out that's not how it worked out. I was actually blocked from doing cataracts for eight years, which means for eight years long, all I did was laser refractive surgery. And as I went further and further into that journey, I started working with, with Wavelight. We had the third laser and became deeper and deeper into it. So I really started thinking like a refractive surgeon. So by the time I started doing cataracts again, is my mind was completely refractively minded. And I couldn't believe how poor our cataract results were. I just couldn't believe it. I didn't know why they were, and especially cataracts in previous LASIK patients. So that got us into other projects, which eventually worked out quite well. So yeah, it's a long, a long story to tell you how I ended up in refractive. And I must say, it's a decision I'm, I'm really, really happy with. It's just been, I think, for my personality type and my values, I think it's just the perfect fit.
1: That's a fascinating history there. Thinking about refractive surgery, can you walk us through some of the, some of the timeline? Because we got a little bit of the timeline uh, in the first episode from Vance, how it was in the US. What was it like outside the US? When was there, was there a big shift from RK to PRK to LASIK? How did that occur? So I qualified
0: in 94, and in my first year of, of private practice, I think I did 12 RKs. And in fact, my best mate, I referred to earlier, he did my brother's RK, and my brother was a minus two. He did pretty well. I never did more than an eight cut RK, so overall was happy enough. But when I, in 94, saw a lecture by John Marshall in South Africa at the South African Society of Cataract and Fractal Surgeons meeting, and he showed her hair, and how this eczema laser had reshaped her hair, I knew we'd entered a new era. And in fact, it was that day that I said to myself, this is what I'm gonna get involved with. I think this is what I'd really enjoy. So at that point, I started doing LASIK. And when I started doing LASIK, everyone around me was doing both eyes at the same time. When I came to Ireland in 98, One of the first meetings I went to was a local Irish meeting and unbeknown to me, I didn't know that people were doing it unilaterally one at a time and maybe six months apart, is in this meeting, the audience was asked, who does both eyes same day? And I put my hand up and everyone looked at me (laughs) and the moderator, a really nice guy, we became good friends, but he said to me, who are you? Where'd you come from? What are you doing? where do you work? When I told him, he said to me, well, I need to tell you that if you ever got into trouble doing both at the same time, you'll have no support because someone else in the country is doing it said, wow, that's really strange. You know, I've done 3,000 cases in South Africa already. Everyone does it that way. The rest of the world does it that way. I'll tell you what, if you invite me back next year, I'll present you a study where we do sequential eyes a week apart versus bilateral eyes and simultaneous eyes, and we'll discuss the results. And he said, sure, let's do that. And I did it, and it turned out a year later that, in fact, the results were fractionally better in the group that had both eyes same day, but not statistically so. And I learned something from that study. Because I asked all the patients when we did them sequentially, I said, if you had the opportunity to have done them both eyes the same day, you've seen the result is good, would you have changed your mind? I expected 100% to say yes, I would prefer to have both on the same day. But 10% said, no, I would still do one at a time. So it just gave a perspective as to how people see risk, how they mitigate risk. Most of those people were, were actuaries. Actuaries, to this day, I think most actuaries I've treated do one at a time. You just want to mitigate risk. And talk about flap creation then, too. The way we
1: create flaps now is very different than how it was done back then. Absolutely.
0: So we started out with the ACS, which was a keratome that went across the cornea. And not a pendulum, it was in a a rail that went across the cornea. And there was one very scary thing about this. If you didn't put the... It was called the block, I think. I can't remember exactly what this was called. But you had to put the blade in as well as this, this block. If you didn't put the block in, you actually incised the cornea. So we were really paranoid about that. And luckily it never happened. But I'd learned a lot in that phase because you knew that if you got a bad flap, it's going to impact the ability to complete the procedure. You could get into big trouble if that block wasn't in. So you really paid attention to detail. that was the, the first time I realized, because I was doing macular holes and all those kinds of things then, treating pathology. And it struck me now, we're treating patients who are very healthy, who have alternatives. And in fact, I was a lot more nervous doing LASIK than I was doing a macular hole or a membrane peel or a, a retinal a giant tear. So that made me realize that I, I understood this value proposition for this patient. This had to go well. And so one of the things I learned really early is you've got to communicate from the word go. That patient needs to know exactly what's gonna happen. You need to talk them through it. It's It's a verbal anesthesia to limit those episodes where things don't go well. So overall, Keratomes worked very, very well. I was actually quite late to femtosecond lasers because we were getting such good results with keratomes. I'd actually never had a free cap since I was in Ireland. I had one or two in South Africa, but in Ireland we used the Hansatome. Never had a free cap, never really had a problem. But we would see maybe one in 1,500 patients where, with a blow to the eye, the flap may move. And we started using the femtosecond laser in 2010, and since then I've not seen a flap move, except overnight on the first night, you know, because of the way the it looks like a manhole cover. It really fits in. At The edges seal well. But they, yeah, those were interesting days. I'm sort of pleased that people don't have to go through them necessarily. But in, in some ways, I think some of the things we learn as we go along, that history, it means a little more when you've actually lived through it. So, I mean, today, when you start off in refractive surgery, the femtoseconds are incredible. The outcomes are amazing. So sometimes without having been through the building blocks of first thing, wayfront optimized, then doing, well, first thing, manolin formula. Standard procedures, then wavefront optimized, then topography guided, well, wavefront guided first, then topography guided. Each of those steps that you lived for a few years is part of the, the foundation of understanding what it looks like down the road. But the beauty today is, and I think that's why refractive surgery now really has the ability to be a subspecialty, is that the technology we have has come on in such leaps and bounds that it is a safe procedure. And with good training, we can sort of start developing the same sort of safety profile as the airline industry does have for argument's sake, you get in a plane, you fall asleep before it's taken off because you just don't have any concerns about the safety of this flight. You know the people are trained, you know the aircraft's in good shape. And I think we're approaching that part now and the link now is just to make sure that all the pilots, all the surgeons are well-trained. And then we've, we've got a good, safe, a safe industry.
1: And speak about that training a little bit. So you've got an organization that you've been heavily involved in, and that's the Refractive Surgery Alliance. Talk a little bit about the Refractive Surgery Alliance and, and kind of its role in refractive surgery and, and advocating for refractive surgeons and quality uh, refractive surgery.
0: I'm oh, glad to share my experience with it, but it's, it's, it's my own experience. So I've, I've been known to say that most of the big societies that have an R in them like SASCRIS, the South African Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgeons, or ESCRIS, the European, or ASCRIS, the American, sometimes ignore the R to an extent. And there's not a huge amount about refractive, really. And um, refractive is, in many ways, it's sort of an easy thing to do. It's simple. You just do it over the weekend, and you don't really have to be well-trained. Any competent surgeon can do it. It couldn't be further from the truth. So in my mind, the RSA fits in for me personally, and for many people who are part of the RSA, is it's really... It's where refractive surgeons meet. It's where they come together. It's our home, is the RSA. Everyone on that platform identifies as a refractive surgeon, have the same thing in mind, They the best possible outcomes. They're there to teach one another. And I think if there's one thing that the RSA taught me, I did learn this from the RSA, is in the past you could potentially have seen yourself as being practiced in isolation and someone down the road opens up and you think, I've got competition now where the RSA doesn't see it that way at all. The RSA sees a practice opening up down the road as a potential collaborator. And in fact, as someone who is validating the space, it's validating the fact that they wanna spend their life doing refractive surgery too, because there's a need. Morgan, you know what the penetration of refractive surgery is, it's absolutely awful. If you think about the results we get, and we have a one to 2% penetration, there's something we're not doing right. The second thing is, every time I looked at this, I sort of wondered, Who's going to address this? Who's going to address this? Whenever you look at the World Health Organization's statistics on visual impairment, the biggest one since I've been looking at them has been uncorrected refractive error. About 40, 45% of visual impairment, 30, 35% is cataract. And we all know today that cataract surgery is nothing more than refractive surgery. And what's more is as time goes on, a lot of RSA members are doing more custom lens replacement for clear lenses than they are doing cataract surgery because people are saying, I want to see now. I don't want to wait until I'm 70 before I get to see like my friends are saying, I want to see it now at 50. And they mightn't be the best candidate for, for laser refractive surgery, corneal refractive surgery. So you go ahead and do a lens-based procedure. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect, there was an incredible report written in The Lancet in 2020. It was the perfect year to write this by something like 76 authors from 76 countries. And if I recall correctly, the article was almost 76 pages long. I just know 76 (laughs) is a number that sort of covered everything. And in these 76 pages, take a guess. I don't know how to phrase this without giving the answer away. But take a guess how much of that article was dedicated to refractive surgery being a potential solution. 76%. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. It's probably 76 words, one paragraph. So one paragraph, when The Lancet publishes an article... On visual impairment due to refractive error, one paragraph of 76 pages, 350 references is refractive surgeries mentioned. So they've got a big job to do. And I think that's part of what the World College is about. That's part of what the RSA is about, is training more refractive surgeons. And there's no one on the planet, including lay people who watch television and they see an advert for a cataract camp or operations site or orbit. or so one of these, it says, I'd love to donate five euro, two or five dollars to support cataract surgery in a developing part of the world. Now, if you think about it, it's a fabulous, we all do it, it's, it's fabulous. It's great to do these, these tours, it's great to be involved. But if you think about it, we're treating people who are no longer really productive. They're at the latter stages of their lives. That doesn't mean they're less deserving of a solution. I mean, that's not the point at all. But in the process, a couple of their children are now no longer productive either because they're taking care of mom or dad who can't see properly. Okay, so it's got an impact on the family, the local village, the community. Now think for a moment if refractive surgery was doing the same thing, was going out there and doing refractive camps. There's a huge need, as we know, plus there's a huge need for people to train, to learn. So you go out with a preceptor, someone teaches how to do these procedures, and it's a win-win. And now you take this 20-year-old and their life has changed in terms of occupational potential, social benefits, sport, everything. Everything changes. They become more productive members of society. And now when mom or dad get cataracts, guess what they do? They take them to the local hospital and they get treatment. So there is a lot to be said for fixing this problem early and creating a much better you know, trajectory for their life than rather doing it the other way around. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to be doing more good And where refractive surgery, as I said earlier, is often seen as just a side dish on the plate of ophthalmology. It's just, you know, something on the side. And refractive surgeons are are sometimes referred to as someone who could really use their skill sets better. If we start doing things like this and start doing good in this sort of scenario, and what the World College has identified, this was Roger Zoldevar's idea, and it resonated with everyone immediately, is we sometimes get caught out thinking about the developing world, but each and every one of us in our own cities has people who have no idea what refractive surgery is, who never have the means to afford it, but who have potential. They're just not seeing. So there's every single one of us gone on a monthly, bi-monthly basis to do a treatment at no cost to change someone's life. And when we start changing that narrative and you know, there's more goodwill around refractive surgery, I think we also change the path. My reason for being so involved and so dedicated to it is if I think back on on my life one day, I don't want to sit back and think I had an impact on the 60,000 patients I've treated, maybe. I mean, that's an impact, but it's on those people only. I think it, for me, it sounds like I'd like to be part of something bigger, where collectively, a thousand of us, or 10,000 of us, do something collectively and leave the world in a better place than we found it. So, you know, really addressing these issues. And I think, I think we've all been silos before. I think it's going to be really good to be part of a big organization that's, that's moving in the same direction. I think there's a lot, of, a lot of power in that. And then refractive surgery will grow. You know, if you came from space as an alien and you came down to Earth and you saw people walking with glasses and others putting contact lenses in and others who could see, and you were told, for those who don't see well, you have three options. You can either wear these spectacles or you can put this thing in your eye or you can just see who's going to choose spectacles or contact lenses, yet it's not the space we're in. And it's once we elevate refractive surgery to being really safe and everyone's practicing at a a sort of a minimal level, then you're gonna find it's gonna grow. Yeah, and I feel like at least in, in
1: refractive surgery, we we hit that threshold a while ago. I mean, really with femtosecond lasers, the success rate and the quality of refractive surgery now, it's there. And there's a reason that ophthalmologists, I think more ophthalmologists choose LASIK and you know or PRK than than almost any other surgery that's done. I mean, it's it's truly amazing. We we buy in because we know how successful it is, we know how safe it is. And I think that's a little different than maybe it was 25 years ago. I don't think there there were a ton of ophthalmologists getting RK, but when you look at the number of ophthalmologists that have had refractive surgery now, it's significantly higher. And that includes RLEs, you know, refractive lens exchanges and and, or clear lens exchanges and and ICLs and fake IOLs and LASIK, PRK, et cetera. And we have this large breadth now of options. And I think that's what's so cool about the field of refractive surgery is, you know, a lot of times I don't, when I'm talking to my patients, I won't always say I'm a cataract surgeon. I'm, I'm a refractive cataract surgeon, or I'm a refractive surgeon, and they have refractive cataract surgeon, you know, because that really is the way that's our mindset. Now, it's not just we're replacing a disease lens. It's no, we're going to give you the best possible vision that we can. It's truly amazing how restorative it is. I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, you're talking about increasing someone's potential to be a productive member of society. I, I think that sometimes patients have difficulty grasping how much of their life can be unlocked by being able to see everything without glasses or contacts when you've been doing it your whole life you don't realize how much of a burden it
0: is until you're freed from that burden morgan you know the first time i had this thought i heard it from someone else who just threw it away in passing and when i heard it i said my word this resonates and i happened to be in south africa at a south african meeting in 2019 and when i went back My wife had come with me and she was with her parents who live in Pretoria in South Africa. And I asked my then 78-year-old mother-in-law, I said, how does this resonate with you? And she immediately got it. And I knew then we had something that made sense. And here's what we say, is when you do refractive surgery for someone, you allow them to own their vision. They own their vision. They're in the shower, they have it. They're at the gym, they have it. They wake up at three in the morning to feed the baby, they have it. They own their vision. Whereas if you don't have refractive surgery and you're dependent on glasses or contact lenses, you're renting your vision, you rent it. Until you get that, that prosthetic on your eye or in your eye, you're not seeing, so you're renting it. And I think that's something that does resonate with people. It does, it does change your mindset. And as you said, Greg Parkers did a study a review and I think it was something like 65% of refractive surgeons had had refractive surgery themselves versus the next highest group in our clinic are accountants. of accountants, as far as we can tell, have had had refractive surgery, but the general population numbers are really, really low. And then if you ask refractive surgeons, how many of their family members have had refractive surgery, It's, it's, it's very, very high. So what's very interesting is there've been quite a few talks coming up in innovative programs about who owns ophthalmology. And I've often thought about who owns the refractive patient. As tertiary specialists, we're not those people. People can come to us directly, but they're often referred by others. And if your optometric community are not pro-refractive surgery, then I don't know how many people we see over the years who've been told, no, you can't have it, you're too young, you've got astigmatism, they can't treat astigmatism, you're hyperopic, they can't treat hyperopia. And eventually they come in five years later and find out they are good candidates. And then they realize, I could have had this five years ago, but someone you know, misled me along the way. And in my view, maybe I'm naive, but in my view, being honest and forthright with patients is always the best way. I don't know that there's another way. And if you're an optometrist gatekeeper and you keep someone from having it done and they eventually have it done, they're going to have a different opinion of you. Whereas if you are a, a good gatekeeper and you're saying, you know what, you're wearing contacts, you're doing reasonably okay with them, but your eyes are drying out a little bit, I think you might be a candidate for refractive surgery. Go and find out. Guess what? That almost keeps you in the position of gatekeeper and primary caregiver. So... It's a mindset that needs to change amongst everybody. Renato Ambrosio says in his community, and I think I wouldn't be a million miles away from our community in Ireland, is potentially the group who need most education are our colleagues, our ophthalmic colleagues. I've had patients come in and say, my ophthalmologist says I shouldn't do this, but I'd like to hear your opinion. Am I a good candidate? Yes or no? So it's it's interesting. I was at a Canadian meeting some years ago, just in a very different format. And they had seven keynotes back to back. And then if you went busy giving the lecture, you were sitting on a panel, and they had a conversation afterwards. And what they would do is they would discuss every speaker as we went along. And there were talks on glaucoma and uveitis and retina and all kinds of things. And my, my talk was on presbyopia. So once I'd completed the talk and the panel discussion was ongoing, the moderator was really good. And he, he went to others and said, all right, you've heard now what's available in presbyopia correction, how do you feel about it? And one by one, Every other speaker said, no, I'll stay with my very focals I'll stay with my bifocals, I'll stay with my reading glasses. And the moderator came back to me and said, what do you make of that? So I said, you know something, it really, really makes me sad. I've been doing refractive now for the last 20 years at that point, and I know more about every other topic on the podium than any of my colleagues know about refractive surgery. I said, how many of my colleagues know that wearing varifocals focals increases your risk of falling and sustaining a head injury, hip injury, or knee injury, sevenfold compared to the person that doesn't wear it. None of them knew it. And gave a number of examples like that, and eventually the moderator went back to them and said, does that change your mind at all? And every single one said, you know what? Yeah, I need to think about it again. I always thought it as being cosmetic and not really important, but- It is. it's, It's interesting. We spend so much time on the insured part of healthcare, but not the performance part.
1: Do you think some of that is due to, as you alluded to earlier, the R in a lot of the organizations doesn't really own the refractive side and they're not really pushing, I don't want to say pushing, pushing is not the right word, but helping to educate and, and foster the refractive surgery like maybe cataract and glaucoma have been within certain societies or even with our main academy. I mean, refractive surgery is still something that's, it's not really talked about all that much. I mean, it's... You know, it's there, but it's not something that is at the forefront. And I just wonder if that has a lot to do with kind of the position we're in and and the need for something like the RSA
0: to really help kind of bridge that gap. I think so. You know, we keep on thinking someone else will take care of the uncorrected visual needs. And if if the answer was spectacles or contact lenses, we wouldn't have the problem anymore. 20 years ago, people said by 2020, you won't find people walking around who can't see anymore. And it's not the case. There's more. We also know that myopia is increasing at a pandemic rate. It's increasing incredibly so, that by 2050, half the world is myopic. I think the backlog we currently have, if we're trying to treat people who can't see due to uncorrected refractive error, it's 100 million eyes per annum coming into that marketplace. What are we doing? Four million a year with LASIK and some with lens replacement and fake eye wells. I think we're being left way off the mark and you know we should be thinking about performance. Of course, the medical side of ophthalmology is crucially important and it played an amazing role. If you think about the developments in retina, glaucoma, they play a massively important role. But the performance aspect, Ike Ahmed once taught this to me because he does some LASIK. He said, you know, if he has a glaucoma patient and at some point decides, I'm going to do refractive surgery for this person, it completely, completely changes their lives. Every visit they have is, I wonder how much more vision I've lost. I wonder what's going on now. I wonder if I'm going blind. And then you have refractive surgery and suddenly, whoa, the world changes. I mean, the glaucoma stays the same, but it's a different perspective. And you alluded to it earlier. For me, of course, we're always measuring the outcomes in terms of vision. But what we can't measure is the way it changes people's lives. I sometimes can't recognize the person six weeks later. They're just different. They've been freed. As you said, they have psychological freedom. They're no longer dependent on, on their glasses to see. You know this that 65% of the brain is dedicated to vision. That the speed of processing vision is 100 times faster than the speed of processing sound. 100 times faster. So we've evolved to being visual beings. Yet many of our colleagues don't care too much about the refractive outcome. I'm not sure how, how to piece that together, I'm not sure. Now why would you not choose if you're doing an IOL to get the best refractive outcome possible?
1: and i do think that fortunately that's that has started to change i mean that's that's how it's it's being taught now fortunately in residency programs is that we're not just doing a, a cat we're not just clearing up a cloudy lens restoring vision and even many times taking them beyond just where they were 10 15 years ago which is it's nice to see that that frame shift you know as as a refractive surgeon it's nice to see more and more people thinking that way in thinking about the rsa and then maybe taking the next step for, for certain refractive surgeons. Tell me about the, the World College. So the World College
0: idea started maybe five, six, seven years ago, but only really started becoming serious about three years ago, when nine or 10 of us got together every single weekend. It started during the pandemic. And in fact, during the pandemic, it was even more frequently, and decided that refractive surgery will never find its true place until it becomes a subspecialty. You know, ophthalmology was the first specialty to branch away from surgery 100 years ago. And surgery now is something like 26 different subspecialties. Ophthalmology still has one specialty, just ophthalmology. There are no subspecialties. We have the at board level. Of course, we have people who do fellowships, and if you go to a glaucoma conference, all of those surgeons are board certified, and the same as fellowship trained, and the same with retinal colleagues, and the same with strabismus. Not in refractive. We all have this very, very varied background. So the idea is through a global board certification process in place, that there's standardization. What we'd like is the same analogy with that aeroplane we spoke about earlier. Think about this for a moment. The way refractive surgery works, if we were pilots, we'd work something like this. I you know what? I have flown a 727 for a couple of hours. I know what's going on over there. I've flown a 737, I flew an Airbus, and I've landed in a couple of airports. Yeah, I know this works. I'm self-certifying, I'm ready to go. That's what we do in refractive surgery. It doesn't work like that in the airline industry. There's a curriculum. There's standards. You've got to learn the process so that people start doing things more and more alike. Now, I think we'd all agree there's one way to fly 737 when you're approaching a certain landing, where in refractive surgery, is not quite so fixed. Now I mean, for a minus three, you might have, depending on their age and, and what they're seeking, you might have four procedures that are equally good. So there's a bit more flexibility to it. And also there's regional differences. So the World College is about establishing refractive surgery as its own specialty. And it was founded on the 2nd of July, 2021, as a B Corp. And the B Corp is a company that is for profit, but that puts purpose ahead of profit. And every one of the 93 co-founders is not seeking to get anything back from their investment. They're investing in this project to make refractive surgery more equitable and more available for, for humankind. That's the first thing. Now, under the college, there'd be two main sections. The one would be the departments, and there's a department of curriculum and standards, and that's looked after by Dan Reinstein. He's got a big committee of maybe 20 people across the globe. There's a department on credentialing, and credentialing has a couple of umbrellas or a couple of subsets. One is certification. So at the moment, people are being grandfathered in if they meet certain criteria, and they're regarded by their peers as refractive surgeons just to get a critical mass. Then there's going to be certification that follows from younger trainees, busy with their training now perhaps, who go through a fellowship and who then do an exam. They become board certified. The next part of credentialing is accreditation. And there are two parts of the accreditation. The one is accrediting facilities. I mean, you won't believe this, but there'd be units around the world where people are doing LASIK with an ultrasound pacometer. So no pacometry profile to detect an early keratoconus, this kind of thing. So clearly that's not the standard we need to be working at. The airline industry wouldn't accept that. What we need to do there is make sure that a center before it's accredited has the necessary equipment to practice at a safe level. And then the final part, which is a very important part because hopefully this gives people some solace in the fact that the World College is not a teaching organization. The World College is a board. It's providing a global board for refractive surgeons. So the the World College does not want to provide education. What it wants to do is put a curriculum in place and say to you, now at the next upcoming AAO, the ISRS day has five or six lectures that are really high quality, that are peer reviewed. And if you attend those, they're gonna count as points towards your accumulation of points you need to, to have the academic input. So if anything, what it's going to do is drive more and more people to meetings that are existing. It's not competing with them. No one wants to compete. On top of that, if any one of those societies decides that we do this themselves, that's a win. That's fantastic. We want the R in those societies. We want people to be trained in refractive surgery. And then, sorry, the third department is the department of impact. This impact department is going to be ultimately the most important department. It's going to be the department that is looking at the benefits of refractive surgery, looking at studies that are currently not done, that industry aren't doing. How many papers have you ever read on custom lens replacement, refractive lens exchange? Mostly if you are doing that procedure, the IOL use is off-label, IOLs for for cataract surgery. So it's doing those kinds of studies, looking at safety. As a retinal surgeon, I have completely overestimated the risk of lens exchange in a high myope. If that high myope has a vitreous detachment and no lattice, the risk of a detachment is almost negligible. It's almost negligible. So those are the departments, and once impact is really working well and can show the savings and the value, I think the lost revenue in productivity due to poor eyesight on a global basis runs into trillions of dollars per year. If you can start showing by giving these people vision, we've saved a certain amount, then you can start creating value from the college, which then gets applied to the Visual Freedom Foundation. I'll tell you about that in a second. So now back to the college, the three departments, and then there's something called the regional advisory councils and they're across the globe at the moment we have six north america south america europe middle eastern africa asia and australasia or oceania so
1: antarctica is left out huh
0: i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> and each of these areas have big committees so the one in europe for argument's sake has 26 committee members but they're 43 countries so they're still trying to find the outstanding, what is it, 16, 17 countries, because we want everyone to be represented. And the college is not an organization that's run top down, not by any stretch of the imagination. Now, at a local level, things might work differently in Oceania than it does in South America. In fact, at the World College retreat we had recently, the person from Oceania spoke about how in Australia alone, how practices differed. So, in the percentage using LASIK versus lenticular extraction. It's diverse, but all we're trying to do is make sure that what people are doing is doing at a good standard and understanding safety. There's another thing we're taking from, from the aviation industry, and that's the concept of, of black box thinking. So in medicine, you know the story well, and every time I hear it, you sort of cringe when people say doctors bury their mistakes, which is not, not a nice way to, <laughs> to speak about us. But sometimes when we do have complications in surgery, we tend to keep them quiet, That doesn't happen in in aviation. In aviation, if there's a mistake that was made with a flight, within 24 hours, that information is disseminated globally. Every pilot's aware of it, because they want to learn from it and avoid that mistake in the future. So we are trying to establish that, that concept of black box thinking too. So that's the college. And then the college has a sister organization, which is a 501C. So it's got charitable status in the US. And this is all about raising capital so that it can be deployed to treat people in underserved communities both in first world countries and cities as well as the developing world. It's a massive, massive vision and I think visions don't always, they're not always realized in your lifetime but that doesn't matter as long as you're on that path but we'd like to see vision correction as a primary methodology of of making you see better. It's got to be up there with choice of glasses, contact lenses and eventually at some point in the future, I don't know when, 100 years, 200 years, we be wearing glasses and contact lenses anymore. You'll have vision correction. So it's starting that journey. So it's, as I say, it's a big dream, but it's one that's, that a number of us feel is worthwhile walking. I didn't think about this until Kathy brought
1: this up on the last episode, was talking about MIGs and how it can actually be a more sustainable option. LASIK, PRK, I mean, these, these refractive surgeries... From a sustainability standpoint and reducing waste, I mean, you think about each individual wrapper of a contact lens or creating glasses and the shipping costs associated with them, the cleaning materials, the fiber. Co- I mean, there's a lot of excess product that it goes into sterilizing and, and creating all those things that from just a, a green standpoint would actually be better if more people chose refractive surgery. I've never really thought about it that way until Kathy was bringing it up about kind of eye drops, but it's it's kind of interesting to think about, right? If you have a 20 year old who gets LASIK, their impact uh, or carbon footprint, if you will, will actually be decreased in terms of just the waste and contact lenses and other
0: things. You know, Morgan, I'm so proud of our younger colleagues like yourself, like my, my, my children is how they think about this. They think about it differently. They're concerned about the planet and they think about it differently. And our older generation have a lot to learn from them we've been polluting the world. I think it's a very, very valid point. You've phrased it beautifully. I have nothing to add. You're 100% right in my view. So let's talk about, you mentioned ACOS a
1: little bit. We haven't had a chance to really bring it up on the podcast, but ACOS is one one of my favorite organizations to be involved with, and that's the American European Congress of Ophthalmic Surgery. And you were a past president of ACOS. Do you want to tell us a little bit about ACOS and kind of the mission of ACOS?
0: Yeah, ACOS is a It's an amazing organization. It's it's one of my favorite meetings in the year. I don't think I've missed one. I've never missed the European one and the Aspen one I go to often, maybe two out of three. It's an an incredible organization. So they're about education, innovation, and advocacy. That's what they're about, including patient advocacy. But what makes the meeting so unique is the fact that there are ophthalmologists and these are serious people. They're really dedicated to improving the field. You look around the audience and everyone, you know their name, even if you might not have met them before. That's the one group. The second group is our manufacturing partners are there. The CEOs of companies are there. The CTOs, the CSOs, the inventors, the scientists are there. So that's tremendous. And then the third part is very interesting, is many of the funders are there. So the venture capitalists and the funds that are investing in ophthalmology. What I found so enlightening over the years is there'll be a panel discussion about a a new topic, like in a shark tank. And the doctors think it's a great idea our manufacturing partners think it's a great idea. And then the venture capitalists look at it and say, no, one work. So it gives you this perspective that for something to work, it needs to meet an unmet need, it needs to be doable, but then it also needs to have a business plan that works. It's it's so interesting in medicine, we sort of think of profit in in a way that profits like a bad word. And the truth is, if your business, whatever business you're in, but in ophthalmology now, if your business is not profitable, it's not sustainable, it's gonna fail. And then you without a job, as is the rest of your team. So we've gotta be profitable to be sustainable. I think the venture capitalists sort of keep us, they keep us on the, on the right track. They know from experience what's gonna work, what's not gonna work. Yeah, so it's an amazing organization. It's one I truly, truly love and one that'll i support for as long as I can. It's always going to have a special place in my heart
1: because one, it's where I met a lot of my friends and, and like-minded colleagues, but it is, it's just, it's a, it's a breeding ground of innovation because you do have those three pillars, right? You have the funding, you have the the ophthalmologist and not just, most of the time, it's not just any ophthalmologist, like you said, you look around and you, you know pretty much everyone's name who's there, uh, except for me hiding in the back. But you know, and then, and then you also have <laughs> you well and then you also have industry. You know, having all three of those together. I mean, it's just it really is just a fun meeting. The discussions are incredible. The organization also now is in, and has been involved in some research, right? So it's done some previous studies, and something we're we're also looking to do more of is more eco-led studies, kind of bridging the gap between like an FDA type study and an investigator-initiated study. So it's, there's some really cool stuff I think that's gonna gonna happen there within the organization. I encourage anyone listening who wants to get involved in innovation research. There's so many tools, whether it's through the AAO, ASCRS, ACOS, your local reps. And really, you can go to most companies have a medical affairs website that you can actually go to to learn about what their research interests are. And so if they align, you can actually submit for a grant to be able to execute the research that you are interested in. And so if you have clinical questions, I think that's a great way to go about it. We did a webinar through the Young Eye Surgeons with ASCRS about getting involved in research and private practice research. So if if you're listening and you're interested in in that aspect, it's out there if you want to listen. The resources are there. You just got to want to do it. And it, it is a time commitment. There's no doubt about it. Speaking of industry, you hold a very unique position. I don't think I've had the chance to talk to too many of my colleagues or physicians who are very involved in a company, intimately involved in a company, beyond being chief medical officer. And you're actually on the board of directors for Alcon. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of how your journey was to getting to that position? Kind of walk us through the history there a little bit.
0: Yeah, it's very, very interesting. I learned a lot along the way, I can tell you that. And no one's more surprised by what happened than I was. And so the first thing I can tell you is that being on the board of directors is you're not an employee of the company, You're actually contracted by the company to sit in a position overseeing the company from a governance perspective and from a strategy perspective. And what's interesting is when you consider your role as a board member, it's interesting. Your primary responsibility is a fiduciary responsibility to the shareholder. So I didn't understand all those things, obviously. When I learned more about it, when it all happened is before I made the decision, I had to learn more about exactly what it meant. And I had a colleague who's on a number of boards and he could help me with this. And because I liked the company so much over the years and what they stood for and what they did, I recall once asking one of their employees, how many rounds of HR interviews do you go through? Because I have yet to meet the Alcon employee who wasn't fantastically impressive. They were just good people. So what was very interesting is they interviewed through an agency, the agency contacted me on LinkedIn and I got this message on a Sunday evening and I disregarded it, thought it's you know the spam we get. But I looked at it the next morning again and thought, this is actually quite well written and they spoke about a Swiss company. I didn't for a moment think about Alcon as a Swiss company and decided to reply. And so I replied and they called me and the lady on the call said to me, she was from the HR company and they only recruit board members and, and CEOs. And she said to me, have I heard of this company called Alcon? And I said, yeah, I've heard of Alcon. I was on some of their medical advisory boards and really enjoyed the company. And so she said, well, they're recruiting for a board member and they'd like you to consider. So I said, yeah, I'd love to. It's, I'd, I'd love to. I've known the company for a long time. And when I went to practice in South Africa in 1994, that's almost just before Acrisoft was launched on the market. And we learned all our devices were Alcon devices. Our lenses were Alcon lenses. We learned so much from the reps in theater. There was a good, I had a very good feeling about Alcon. And then the last few years prior to 2017, 2018, they were under a pharma company umbrella and not sort of the Alcon we knew. And i had had the opportunity to quite close from an MAB perspective, being on a medical advisory board, I could see how the then CEO, Mike Ball, and the CEO, David Endicott, how they changed that company they changed it completely. And I could see it coming down all the way to ground level. I could see the reps in the office, how they become proud to be working for Alcon again and energized. And, and I thought to myself from a selfish point of view, if I can have time to sit in a room with those kind of people, it's an incredible opportunity to learn and see how things are done. So eventually having gone through these rounds of interviews, my final two were with the chairman, Mike Ball, and with David Enicott, the CEO. And I had two rounds of interviews with them, one in Switzerland and one in the States at an AO, I think. It could have been an, an ASCRIS. And I recall asking them at some point and saying, look, there's one thing that I just can't get my head around. You know, you have, I think they have 400 KOLs in Alcon. And I said, you could choose from anyone. You could actually choose from anyone. I've got to understand this. Otherwise, I'm not going to know how this works. How come you thought this is a good fit for me? And what they said was, and you wouldn't get the sense of it today because I'm speaking so much. But they said, what we like about you is that you listen. And you listen with the intent of learning, but not with the intent of trying to make a smart comment. But when you do make a comment, we've noticed people often sit and listen. So that was very, very humbling to figure that's what they needed there. And so it was a good lesson because on the board, being the only ophthalmologist, the rest are incredibly astute board members with, I think, between the 11 of them, me included, and I'm one of the 11. The other 10 have something like 29 other public boards, you know, they're very, very well-versed individuals. And a couple of them said to me at some point early on, because I'm, I'm learning from them all the time, and they said to me, it would be good if you speak last when we have a round of comments on something. And I sort of knew why, but they explained very carefully, being the only ophthalmologist, you're in a position where you could impact the way we're thinking about something. And it's a very valid point. You know, they bring something to the table that is collectively just absolutely enormous. It's an incredible privilege. When I think about anything that's, that's happened to me, I can't think of anything really that's been a bigger, recognition not even the right word, just a bigger opportunity to be involved at this level. It's brilliant. And what I would say is boards aren't there forever, not by any means of the stretch of the imagination, they turn over. And if I could encourage any one of my colleagues, if the opportunity came their way is take it. It's a fantastic opportunity to see how these big companies with such high integrity, how they function, how they fit in the world, how things work. It's been an amazing, amazing learning experience and met some incredible individuals. Yeah, and
1: it sounds like one of your goals is to reach as many people as possible. You look at the things you've done, and that's one one of the many reasons I wanted to chat with you today is, you know, I mean, not just your contributions to refractive surgery, but the reach that you've had through all the different organizations from ACOS to the RSA to the World College to being a board member for a major company. I mean, all of these things impact all of us throughout the world as ophthalmologists providing care. So you've had an impact on thousands of thousands of patients personally, tens of thousands of patients, but globally your impact is probably in the millions, which is pretty cool to think about. So thank you for all of that.
0: That's a very nice comment, but I need to add something to it is every time I'm asked an opinion, I don't necessarily give my personal opinion in any of those organizations. I learned so much on medical advisory boards That's why I love going to them, is I sit and listen, as I said, more than I speak, because you learn from your colleagues. we have got some incredibly bright colleagues out there doing amazing things. And so always try and give a perspective that is not necessarily mine. Sometimes I wouldn't agree with the perspective I'm giving, but I'd say this is what the mainstream thought would be. I think slightly differently, this is what it is. So I think it's about giving perspective and putting the purpose ahead of your individual goals or wishes or desires. When I sit in a meeting like that, I'm speaking on behalf, of colleagues. So I do have some colleagues who have come to me and said, I'd like you to please make Alcon aware of this or aware of that. And that's exactly what my role is, to advocate for patients and and physicians. So if there's something that you'd like to get in front of people who need to hear it, I want you to tell me, please get it out there. I'm, I'm struggling to get through. The pathway is not clear to me. And I mean, that's my role to make sure that their customers, they all about the customer and their customers, ophthalmologists and optometrists their reach to the end consumer is is sort of indirect, except with contact lenses maybe and some of the vision care
1: products. I wonder if a history of medical advisory boards and ophthalmology would be, because I think there is a lot of history there and it's something that not a lot of people know about. Being on medical advisory boards can be a little intimidating, (laughs) especially when you're the younger one there or
0: if you're just getting involved. I think the key thing is when you think about it, if there are 10 people on that medical advisory board, they want 10 opinions. They don't want one opinion from one person dominating the, the conversation. They want 10 opinions. And what I've often said, especially at the medical advisory board level, is how much of the time the more senior people, like if you were to ask senior people that you know, 10 people on a certain topic, you'll very likely get an awful lot of consensus because they're all they've evolved to the same point. And I think when you want to learn, you've got to ask the young people, what are the needs? You've got to ask someone who's not even doing refractive surgery. You've got to get a very broad perspective when you're looking at unknowns. There's a really good book called The Wisdom of Crowds. And what they're saying is there are experts. And if you're flying in a plane and the pilot goes down, you'd hope there's another pilot on board who would fly it rather than you or me flying it. So there are experts that are the main experts. But when you're looking ahead, no one's an expert. No one is. All you need to do is look at the stock market and see how experts give us advice on what to invest in. And I mean, they're wrong. A monkey throwing darts at a Dart board is more accurate. So when you're looking at what's ahead of you, where you get your most information from is the wisdom of a crowd. Now the crowd needs to be diverse in terms of what they do for a living, their socioeconomic status, gender, interests. When you get a diverse crowd, when they look at the future, they get the most accurate picture of what's gonna happen. And that's what we need from advisory boards. You don't need 10 people who are recognized names. You need somewhere, someone sitting there, who's, who's this person? and they should be given a voice. That's when you learn, that's when you learn.
1: Oh, that's a great point. Is there any guidance that you would recommend to your younger colleagues, any pearls or gems that
0: you have about your career? I think that the one comment I'd make when I went to practice in South Africa and I joined, the senior partner said to me, you're very enthusiastic, you know, but in 10 years time, you'll be bored. And I, I recall then thinking that's not gonna happen. My parents were not wealthy. They broke the bank to put us through college and I said to myself, there's no ways I'm going to let my career be boring one day. I owe my patients more anyway. And so I made a decision. I really want to keep it novel and innovative. And the very best way to take joy from your practice is when you're involved with innovation or a new product or a, a study you're involved with. I can imagine that while you were doing the study that you were doing, every day was, a, was such an exciting day because you're looking at outcomes, you, you're learning as you're going along. I think if you can get involved in any way with any sort of organization that just keeps you current, keeps you interested, that's an investment that's gonna keep your investment in yourself and your practice and your patients viable for so much longer. And I mean, we hear so much today about physician burnout. And thankfully, from what I can see, it's not really affecting ophthalmology too much. And I think it's because we're an industry or a profession that is so rich in technology. So we have these opportunities to, to work with companies, to work with colleagues, to work with societies. I'd suggest that, that you remain part of a community. Probably for me, the best advice I can give.
1: Arthur, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for spending some time with us and for all you've contributed to the field. To our listeners, thank you for joining us on another episode of the History of Care. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today and you were able to take away some valuable insights. If you've enjoyed this episode, as always, please consider subscribing to our podcast on your preferred platform and drop us a rating or review. And don't forget to follow us on social media to stay up to date and join in on the conversation. I want to take a quick moment to thank our sponsors for helping support this editorially independent content, in particular Alcon, who is a founding level sponsor of the season one of the history of eye care. And that concludes another episode of The History of Eye Care with your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast on your preferred platform. Don't forget to follow us on social media to stay up to date with our latest episode information and to join in on the conversation.